Multiple sclerosis means many scars. It's a chronic disease that mainly attacks the central nervous system, where nerves in the brain, spinal cord and optic nerves are stripped of their protective sheath. This leads to symptoms of MS which vary widely between people, from blurred vision, numbness and tingling in the limbs, to progressive disease leading to paralysis in some people. There is no actual cure for MS, but there are drugs that can alter the course of the condition. Research in recent years has determined a few things about risk factors. For example, low levels of vitamin D, smoking and being overweight, and living further away from the equator also increases the risk. MS affects around three times as many women as men too. But perhaps most intriguingly, MS has been associated with an infection from the Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. This is the virus that causes mono, which is also known as glandular fever in the UK. Earlier this year, the strongest evidence yet that MS might be caused by EBV was published in the scientific journal called Science. Today, we'll dive into that research and ask, is there finally hope on the horizon for MS? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, people with lived experience of conditions and experts, but between them as well. To discuss MS, I'm joined in conversation by... My name is Dr. Andrew Ronneberger. I'm a GP, a family doctor in uh, Devon, England. And I've recently retired on ill health grounds with my MS. I'm 53 years old. I am Mariana Cortese. I'm a physician scientist working at the Harvard School of Public Health. And I'm one of the first authors of the recently published science paper on the role of Epstein-Barr virus infection for the risk of multiple sclerosis. Ancha, welcome. Thank you very much, and it's nice to be here. Mariana, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to meet you. Ancha, can you start by telling us how you knew you had MS? Oh, that's a very difficult question because it took a long time. Although I'm a doctor myself, a GP who sometimes has to do with MS diagnosis, I didn't know I had a mess. I just felt there was something wrong. Uh, I was incredibly fatigued. That was probably my first symptom. But as all doctors work very hard, and especially family doctors in the UK, I worked far too long, far too many hours, and uh, put it down to that. So I thought I had burnout rather than anything else. Then my next symptom is probably mobility problems, balance problems, that kind of thing. I became clumsy and incredibly slow. So that was probably the first symptoms. And then what is very unusual for MS, I lost a lot of weight, about 20 kilos, which is not the rule at all and shouldn't make you think of MS, but that happened to me. Not sure why, maybe it was a stress, but that's what brought me to see my doctor and have investigations because I couldn't stop the weight loss. 
I was overweight, so everyone was very pleased, apart from me, because I couldn't actually stop it. So that was my first reason to go to the doctor. Uh, Mariana, did you have any questions you wanted to ask Antje? Uh, how long did it take you to be diagnosed? It must have been very difficult, the wait and the uncertainty. Well, as is always easy in hindsight, I probably had some symptoms about 10 years or maybe even 20 my neurologist things because I had balance problems for a short period of time 20 years ago. But let's say five years, it became more and more significant for five years. You had a brain scan. That was the thing that sealed the diagnosis because there's so much overlap with the symptoms with all sorts of other things. How did you get to the point of getting a brain scan? Well, I think the fatigue was one reason. The other thing was that I had a certain weakness in my right leg, which was only there if I exercised for a while. With I walked for a while and I tripped over my right foot. So I, I do have a foot drop now. And that sort of came slowly apparent. And that's why my GP, my family doctor, requested actually a MRI scan of my spinal cord and then only the end referred me to the neurologist and the neurologist asked for a brain scan of my head as well because, well, he didn't suspect MS, the first neurologist I saw actually, because all my examination by him was actually normal. And then I had the brain scan and then he phoned me a few days later and said, it looks like demyelization and a mess. So that's how it came about. Myelin's the protective sheath that covers nerve fibres. So demyelination, do either of you want to explain what that actually means, what it looks like on the scan? Mariana, do you want to pick that one up? Okay, yes. So what happens in a mess is that the immune system attacks the myelin sheaths around the neurons in the central nervous system. And these myelin sheaths break down and this can affect the signal transmission of the nerve and also makes the nerve more vulnerable to damage since this myelin sheath is really there for insulation and protection of the neuron. And this can lead to an array of different symptoms, as Antje was describing. So Antje, there's different types of MS, aren't there? There's a sort of type that's progressive, and then a type that people have attacks and then remissions, and may even actually go back almost to normal. What type do you have? I've got the remitting, relapsing form. So that's the most common, isn't it? It's about 85% of people who have that. Yeah, yes. What brings the attacks on then? Are they, is this is sudden? You suddenly get what, like blurred vision or dizziness or what? Actually, my relapses, if they were there, I had very little in terms of acute, uh, impressive <laughs> relapse. So mine are very, very subtle. That's why it took so long to diagnose. What brings it on? Not sure, actually. I was going to ask Mariana that if she's got any more research in that way. But they say it could be uh, stress, it could be tiredness, 
and viral infections, uh, CBV or any virus makes it worse. It brings on especially the fatigue. Sleep deprivation is another thing. Ah, yeah. So, Mariana, just to answer Ancha's question, what do you know about what brings on attacks? Unfortunately, ultimately, it's not well understood. This is something we're also currently studying, actually, in our group, whether there are markers that could help us predict whether someone would have a more severe disease course, more attacks, but it's ultimately not well understood. And that's also something that patients struggle with when they get a diagnosis in the middle of their lives. And it's not clear who will have a more benign course and a more severe course. And this could also help to select more adequate treatments, more potent treatments if the disease will go more severely. And, you know, more potent treatments can have maybe more side effects. So this is a very relevant question that the community is investigating, but it's not well understood. And it can also change from one. So you might start off with a mild case or slowly progressing, and then it can suddenly become much more severe and quickly progressing. That is a weird thing. And you never know what tomorrow brings. What was it like changing from being a doctor to being someone with a long-term condition? Very hard. The uncertainty, I would think, is probably the worst thing. I mean, it's worse than any diagnosis. But, you know, even if I have the diagnosis now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, you know? So it's very, very hard to make any plans at all. What, what do you fear? What do you fear most? Well, you the loss of independence. I've already lost a lot of my independence. I mean, I'm 53 and I need help with a lot of things. And I used to be really independent and extremely active, traveling, doing sports, extremely sociable, you could say. You know, I loved having people around, visitors, six, eight people staying at home. And all that is making me really, really fatigued and tired and I have to plan everything. So, yeah, it's definitely life changing completely. And I have to, had to give up my job. I mean, that was my main issue recently. I've only given up end of January. So I was going to carry on working at least a bit. But unfortunately, that's not to be now. So that is a big thing. Uh, I, 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 if people ask, oh, how are you getting on with it? I say, well, I feel like something has been amputated. <laughs> it's really like that because I always wanted to be a doctor from when I was about 10. So there was no other option for me. If I wouldn't have been a doctor, I would have been a nurse or a carer or, you know, depending on grades. And I can't do any of that now. I can't do any paid work now because of my pension. So... It's very hard. So I'm looking for a place to be at the moment. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the questions that people have when they get a serious illness like you've had or you have is, why me? What caused it? And I want to turn to Mariana now. And what have you found out about the onset of multiple sclerosis through your research in the recent paper? Well, in the recent paper, what stands out is that something that has been a suspicious agent for MS for a long time and investigated by many groups in the world, the Epstein-Barr virus, seems 
now with this new findings to be the leading cause of MS. Ancha, do you want to uh, dive in with some questions? You've read the paper as well, haven't you? Yes, I have. Very interesting, very exciting. I mean, even people who have nothing to do with MS are very excited, definitely in the doctor's community over here. So it was a study that went on for quite a while, wasn't it? Yes, so this is a collaboration effort that started over 20 years ago with the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. So the senior authors, my mentors, Dr. Ascarian and Dr. Munger, really did the mammoth work in this whole project. And it took this long to get together such a big cohort. How big was it? So this is a cohort of U.S. military personnel comprising 10 million individuals, and they gave 62 million serum samples in total. And in this cohort, we identified who developed MS during their military service, and we identified through medical record reviews, 955 individuals. And we could access up to three blood samples in 800 of these individuals. And what did you find? We saw that all of them, but one person, was infected with EBV by the time they developed MS. And then we also did an additional analysis looking at who was negative for EBV in the start of the military duty period. And there were only 35 we identified who were EBV negative at baseline. Then through follow-up, 34 of those seroconverted, meaning they acquired EBV and then went on to develop MS. So only one did not seroconvert. In the controls, it was of those that were EBV negative at baseline, 107, only 50% seroconverted. And that corresponds to the actual seroconversion rate. So how many people acquire EBV in adulthood per year. So this is like the baseline rate. And in uh, individuals who developed MS, it was almost all that seroconverted. And this leads to the strong risk estimate. And this is what leads to these findings that it seems like acquiring EBV versus remaining negative for EBV leads to a 32-fold increased risk of developing the disease. And this is why we think it is the leading cause of MS, because nothing, no other risk factor ever looked at comes even close to that. But also, an additional analysis saw that the increases of a biomarker in the blood that indicates that there's already something going on in the brain, uh, that there's already, you know, neuroaxonal injury going on. This is another biomarker we measured, and we really see that EBV even precedes this increases when the patient doesn't even have symptoms yet, but just a biomarker increase in the blood. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary, that finding. This is as strong as the link between smoking and lung cancer. But if we think not about the relative risks, but about the absolute risks, so for smoking and lung cancer, if you smoke and carry on smoking through your life, somewhere between 1 in 20 or 30 people who smoke will get lung cancer at some stage. Whereas I think we're talking about a different scale, aren't we? If you, 
you're talking about someone with Epstein-Barr virus infection. Can you talk us through these absolute risks? So um, in an adult population, about 95% are infected with EBV, were infected at some point in their lives and remain infected with EBV. Once you get the virus, you remain infected. You cannot clear the body from it. If we talk about MS, uh, the numbers are one in 200 to 400 individuals develop MS. This is the lifetime risk. Two, 200 to 400 depends on gender. So women are more likely to develop MS. That's why there's a range. So yes, a very common virus is able to cause a relatively rare disease such as MS. And this may seem like a paradox, but it's actually pretty common in biology that common viruses can lead to rare diseases. So actually, MS can be considered a rare complication of an Epstein-Barr virus infection at this point. And I mean, the same with lung cancer, right? Not everyone who smokes will develop lung cancer, just that the numbers are a little less extreme, but it's similar here. Yeah. So, uh, Mariana, why has it been so hard to find this association? There's been a smoking gun around mono or what we call in England glandular fever for quite a long time now. Yes. So the findings from many, many groups over the years have been consistent and really pointing to the Epstein-Barr virus. However, it was very difficult to talk about causality. So to talk about causality, we would need to run a randomized controlled trial, right? We would take two groups and expose one group to the Epstein-Barr virus, the other not, follow them over time until age 30, 40, and see what happens. Such a study is not possible for obvious reasons, right? EBV is widespread. You get it from other sources. It's just not possible to do such a study and also not ethical. And so what we try to do in this study in the military population is finding the closest possible study. So we wanted to find a group of individuals who were not infected by EBV and follow them over time. And this is why conducting such a study is so difficult. A, because Epstein-Barr virus is so widespread. So to find individuals that are negative to begin with is difficult. And B, MS is a relatively rare disease. So to find individuals who were negative in early adulthood and then went on to develop MS is even harder. And this leads to the requirement of such a big number and such a, a large cohort. And this is why it wasn't possible to talk about causality so far. Where does this leave other risk factors such as vitamin D deficiency, smoking, overweight and exercise as protective? Yeah, so there are other factors that have been consistently associated with MS. And what we think is that they remain important since we almost all are infected with the Epstein-Barr virus. So these factors such as low vitamin D levels may further modify the MS risk once you have acquired the Epstein-Barr virus. So it seems like the Epstein-Barr virus really makes your risk of developing the disease jump up. But then there are other factors needed that further modify your risk. So, yeah, that's the way to think about it. 
So, Ancha, can I come to you? Has this study, reading the study, has it changed your view of what you think caused your MS? Mm, not really, no, because of the triggers, you know, you don't know what triggered it on top. Yeah, I was EBV positive, but so are most other people. So I think it was five years between zero conversion and developing MS on average. Is that right? Five to seven. Yeah. So five was the first positive sample. But since someone would seroconvert between the samples, so it's about five to seven. That's the median, at least. Yeah. And obviously, I was wrecking my brain, you know, what happened five to seven years before? Did I have any illness? And I had many, many, many because I'm a family doctor and constantly dealing with children with viral infections. So, and I was very ill at times, but who knows if one of them was EBV. And Mariana, I read that the Epstein-Barr virus lurks in the B lymphocytes forever. So if someone's got a relapsing remitting type of MS, do you think that's viral reactivation or something else that's going on? There's definitely one possibility. The Epstein-Barr virus remains, we call it latent in B cells throughout life. It hides in the B lymphocytes uh, from the immune system. Is that in everybody? So everybody, it's like the 95% of us yes. who've had the Epstein-Barr virus, we've got that latent and it could reactivate. You shouldn't imagine it as every B cell has Epstein-Barr virus in it. It's actually one in 100 or 200,000 B cells that you will detect EBV in, but that's what happens. Once you acquire EBV, and most people do acquire it in childhood, without any symptoms, unnoticed, will keep the virus in the B cells. The virus has evolved to really hide from the immune system. And, and then intermittently, it will reactivate. So the infectious cycles are renewed and the virus is shed into the saliva and that's the transmission route to other people. And it could remind of a relapsing remitting disease course, right? The reactivation cycles. However, we don't know. This is definitely one hypothesis. It's in general not understood and not clear whether the Epstein-Barr virus is also involved in the disease course. The study in science does not answer that. We couldn't look at this. Um, this is the next most relevant question. What's the underlying mechanism with which the Epstein-Barr virus causes MS. And related to that, it will depend on the mechanism, whether it is also involved into defining how severe the disease will, will take its course. So is your next set of research, is that going to focus on that? Uh, definitely. This, this was our hope, publishing this study, that, uh, you know, the research effort in MS will be more focused towards that, because once we know the mechanism, treatment options are more immediately the next step. Exactly. So getting to understand the primary cause of a disease, the next step is treatment. So what does this tell us about treatment for MS? So if EBV was also involved in the disease course, so in defining whether someone has more relapses or progresses more rapidly, then you could imagine that targeting the infectious agent 
more directly could treat the disease in a better way and even a cure becomes an option. But there are a lot of ifs, right? EBV could also just set off a trigger and then not anymore play a role once the disease starts. That's also a possibility, but we need to understand that better. Ancho, what did you want to ask? Only that nerve tissue is not able to regenerate easily, is it? So even if you find a cure to get rid of the ABV or vaccination, which I believe is the other thing, or an antiviral, even then, you know, the damage is done in a way. And all nerves are affected, peripheral, central, everything. So... I'm not sure what would be needed to make it regenerate because the myelin is gone. Yeah, so earlier in disease course, when, when you have the relapsing, remitting phases, there is a remission and a restitution of the myelin and the, and the nerval integrity. A little bit, yeah. But yeah, so you could imagine that earlier treatments could definitely prevent but then again, yeah, how does the early phase of where there's more neuroinflammation attacks and relapses affect the longer term progression? And, you know, how can we prevent that the nerve dies or becomes so vulnerable that it cannot restitute? So these are all questions that are somehow related, but very relevant. And, and all the areas are being investigated separately as well. So. Where does that leave treatments like monoclonal antibodies? So the most potent drugs we have today, the monoclonal antibodies called ocrelizumab and rituximab, actually target B cells. Think about the B cells as a reservoir of EBV. More than suppressing the immune system, what it could hint at is that you minimize the B cells that have this EBV in them. So this is one argument that maybe EBV plays a role in the disease course. What these drugs do is minimize the B cells available and circulating in the blood. And they're very effective against at least the neuroinflammatory part of the disease, which are the relapses, etc. So they're a little bit like shooting with a cannon. They target B cells in general and then can lead to other problems. So if we were to have more targeted treatments, for example, antivirals, as Antje said, then maybe we could better treat MS if EBV is involved. So really, the, the main thing is to find out now the underlying mechanisms. Antje, you're on um, ocrelizumab. Yeah. How are you finding that? Absolutely fine. I mean, amazingly, I had no side effects whatsoever. It's an infusion every six months, and for the infusion, you spend about five hours in hospital. And I feel nothing at all apart from feeling anxious every time I have it. <laughs> Let me just come to the end now. Mariana, what are the hopes for prevention of MS? So... The idea of a vaccine is a nice one, and many groups have been working on a vaccine for years, but it is very challenging if we think of MS. Because you can imagine if people get infected early in life, mainly with EBV, 
then such a vaccine would need to be given early in life and also convey sterile immunity throughout life because it's everywhere, right? We could get it later. Are we then just delaying the infection and then it may more commonly lead to infectious mono and have an even stronger immune reaction to after the first infection with EBV? We don't really know. And it's also difficult to test, right? If you give a vaccine early, in childhood, how, how are you going to test this? Follow people in a trial for 30, 40 years? It's very challenging. So I think the lower hanging fruit is really the treatment options to understand the mechanisms and then related to what we understand and find, develop more targeted treatments. Ancha, any comments? No, just to say it's amazing what you're doing and, you know, what 20 years. It's so, I mean, I would have never thought that in my lifetime as a doctor, as I'm now at the end of my career, that I would see so many different illnesses being able to treat like COVID. And now MS is another exciting one. And we had a couple more in life. So it is just mind boggling for me. <laughs> Dr. Ancho Ronneberger and Dr. Mariana Cortesa, thank you so much for joining me in conversation. Thank you so much. Yes, it was a pleasure. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read more about multiple sclerosis on our website. That's at medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again next month with a discussion about how climate change is impacting our health. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a Hivers Radio production for Medical News Today. Music